Hello, hello. How's everybody doing tonight? A little bit rainy. That's nice, kind of relaxing. Guys, we've been going through the book of Mark, and we'll be going through it all year. And I've said a number of times that the book of Mark is a story that is good news. The book of Mark is a story about God coming in to restore, to redeem, to renew through King Jesus. And we, we saw the build-up to King Jesus, that he's the fulfillment of all the promises that God had made back in the Old Testament, all the things that the people of God had been waiting for and expecting. And then we saw Jesus burst onto the scene, and what we got to see is story after story of the authority of the king put on display. We got to see how he teaches with authority, how he calls with authority, how he heals, he has authority over the body, how he rebukes demons, he has this authority in the spiritual realm. And by the end of that passage, we see that there's a lot of favor that Jesus has with people. He's getting popular. This is a very positive scene. And then this week, things take a little bit of a turn. We're still seeing the authority of the king, but now there's opposition. This week, we're going to see that King Jesus clashes with the religious authorities of his day. And so we're going to go through and we're going to see different stories that highlight different aspects of ideas or practices that Jesus is bringing in that just conflict with the religious authorities of his day. And as we look through, we're going to have the tendency to feel like this religion of the Jews feels foreign and far from us. And it's going to be hard at maybe for some of us to think that this really relates to today. Um, but the, the funny thing is that we live in a culture that's very similar to Jesus' day in this sense. Uh, we live in a religiously saturated environment here. We're in Nacogdoches, Texas. This is uh, Bible Belt South, right? Um, and many of us who've grown up here have grown up with some familiarity with Christianity. Some of that has been really good. And we've been able to learn good, true things. And we've seen the positive effects on our culture. And some of it is just false. It sounds like Christianity. You've been taught maybe that it is Christianity. And it's just false. It's man-made religion. And Jesus came to put an end to that. The way of Christ came to put an end to that. So that you might walk in what is actually life with God. And so tonight we're going to see this clash between Jesus and the religious authorities. We're going to talk about the different nuances that are going on in that day. And then we're going to talk about how does that kind of play out in our lives. How are we called to walk in the way of Jesus and reject the way of man-made religion? So go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible personally, there should be one in the pew back right in front of you. That's black, it's hardbound. Go ahead and grab that. And if you literally don't have one that's your gift, uh, you can take that. Um, and we're going to do things just slightly differently tonight uh, because we're going through Mark 2, 1 through 3, 6. That's quite a, uh, that's quite a passage. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain the layout of what's going on in verses 2, 1 through 3, 6. And then I'm going to zone in on this middle central part. And then I'm actually going to step out of the way and let four of my interns just read the rest of the story. Okay? So we'll go ahead and get to that. But I want, to, I want you to see what's going on in Mark 2, 
through 3.6. If you put your first finger on 2.1, you flip on over and put another finger on 3.6. Between those two fingers, you have five stories. 2, 1 through 12, 13 through 17, 18 through 22, 23 through 28, and then 3, 1 through 6. That's five different separate stories. But they're all bound up together by that central middle story. That's verses 18 through 22. All the other stories are about Jesus interacting with the religious authorities and they're clashing. It's about some conflict. But the middle story is not really a conflict. It's really more of a religious discussion. And it's in that discussion that Jesus provides a principle. He's going to say that the way that he is bringing the reign of God on earth clashes with man-made religion. These two things don't fit together. The way that Jesus brings the reign of God on earth does not fit. It's not consistent with. It will not live harmoniously with man-made religion. And so we're going to zone in on 18 through 22. We're going to walk through that. I'm going to read it and explain it. And then I'm going to step away. And I want you guys to listen as the interns read to see how that theme comes out in all the different stories. Okay? So let's go ahead and jump into 18 through 22. Again, the way that Jesus brings in the reign of God on earth clashes with man-made religion. And we see this in a discussion about fasting. Verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your, your disciples don't fast? In the ancient world, um, in ancient Israel, fasting was a way of expressing mourning over sin. And it was also a way of crying out to God for salvation. This is what we see in the Old Testament. This is good natural and right. There's nothing wrong inherently about fasting. Um, but there's a time and a place for it. And by Jesus' day, many people had taken this practice of fasting, and instead of just making it about mourning over sin seriously, instead of crying out genuinely to God for salvation, they really make it about them and exalting themselves before men, gaining the attention of people. And then other Jews are using fasting to try to gain favor with God. Look at what I'm doing down here for you. When are you going to answer my prayers, basically, is how it worked. It's a manipulative tool. But fasting is very, very common. It's expected of religious people. And so in this question, look, these other people, they fast. Their disciples fast. Why don't your disciples fast? There's an implicit critique here. This is what religious people do. You don't teach your disciples to do this. What kind of religious teacher are you? Right? This is an implicit critique of Jesus. Why don't you teach your disciples to fast? And then Jesus says this, verse 19. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So Jesus brings this Old Testament imagery of the bridegroom in, and he actually applies it to himself. This is a shocking thing because in the Old Testament, the bridegroom is God, Yahweh, the God of Israel himself. He says, I am your God, you are my people, I am your husband, you are my wife. 
And so we see this love relationship between God and his people through the Old Testament. And frankly, it's really messy. One of the pictures that we get in the Old Testament is of a man who pursues his wife named Hosea and his wife who repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly commits unfaithfulness and adultery. And God's heart is just broken. And he finally gets to the point where he says, look, there's discipline for this. And I'm going to remove my presence from you for a time. But there is coming a day whenever the bridegroom will come again to forgive your sins, to wash you clean, to take you again and walk with you as a husband loves his wife. You will be mine again. And so that was a promise that God had made long ago. He called himself the bridegroom. And then Jesus comes in and he applies this imagery to himself. You see, in the Gospels, Jesus rarely says, hey, I'm God, worship me. But what he does often is he does acts and he makes claims for himself that point in that direction. Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who's come in to forgive the sins of his people and save them. He uses this imagery of a wedding, too, because a wedding is a time for a party. A wedding is a time of celebration. It's not a time to fast. And he's saying, look, fasting, mourning over sins, I get that. Fasting, crying out to God for salvation, I get that. Open your eyes. The bridegroom is here. Your sins are being forgiven. That's available to you right now. Salvation is right here in your midst. That's available to you right now. This is a time for joy and for celebration. It's not a time for fasting. That's basically what he's saying. And then he moves on, and he uses two images. And the basic point is this. The old way, the things that you're used to, is incompatible with the new way. He's going to describe that with an image of cloth and an image of wine and wineskins. So let's read verses 21 through 22. Jesus says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So these two images make this basic point. The old is incompatible with the new. These two things don't go together. And in fact, if you try to mix them, you have trouble. Uh, whenever you have a piece of unshrunk cloth and you try to patch an old garment, what happens is you wash it, that shrinks, and it actually tears the old garment. You made a worse problem than you had. And you don't put new wine in old wineskins because of the fermentation process. See, the way that my wine is made is you got to put it in an, a new wineskin that's stretchy, that's elastic, so that way whenever the gases that come from fermentation build, it can actually stretch out the skin and remain intact. But if you take an old wineskin and you try to put fermenting wine in there, that gas is going to build up, the elasticity is gone, and it's going to burst. You're going to lose your wine and you're going to lose your wineskins. And so Jesus is drawing on these images that everybody's familiar with, and he's making this point. The old doesn't match with the new anymore. And specifically what he's getting at is the old man-made religion that's built up over time that you've come to accept, that you've been steeped in, that you've assumed is incompatible with what God is doing in me, what I am doing. 
I'm bringing new wineskins. You have old wineskins. So you have a choice. Are you going to accept that new wine? Get rid of your old wineskins? Or are you going to try to hold on to your old stuff? This is the crossroads that Jesus calls people to. This is the crossroads that he's going to call people to in every story that we see here tonight. The people in Jesus' day have old wineskins. They have old man-made religious ideas that they've been steeped in, they've been raised with. And those things need to be set aside if they're going to embrace King Jesus. And so what we're going to do now is we're actually going to look at the four different stories so we're going to go 2, 1 through 12, 13 through 17, skip over what I just read, 23 through 28, and 3, 1 through 6. Interns, go ahead and make your way on up here, okay? Um, I want you to actually hold the scriptures. I want you to see the word of God. I want you to listen and receive. And I want you to be looking for this, the clashes between the old wineskins and the new wine. These interns are just going to read the text one by one, and I want you to follow along. You're looking for clashes between old wineskins and new wine. Go ahead, Taylor. Okay. And, he, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Then he went out again by sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. One Sabbath, he was going throughout the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not, not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not the man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath. 
Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Four different stories, all stories about clashes between the religious elite and Jesus, between old wineskins and the new wine that Jesus is bringing. We see that at the end, things have escalated to the point where the religious elite actually decide they're going to kill Jesus. So conflict after conflict after conflict is all building again towards verse 6 in chapter 3. Look at it with me. The Pharisees, and this is on the Sabbath, the day that they're so concerned to preserve the holiness of, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. These are people that they do not associate with. They're not friends with. These are the people in political power, and they have a common enemy. And so they hold counsel with the Herodians against Jesus, and they talk about how to kill him, how to destroy him. And so we see in each of these four episodes that old wineskins and the new wine that Jesus is bringing, these are incompatible. There's not going to be a reconciliation between the two. By the end of the time that we see here, the religious elite are not going to reject their ways. They're actually going to figure out how to kill this guy who's bugging them. And so look at verse 2, 1 through or chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, just as a recap, a summary. The main idea here is over who has the authority to forgive sins. That's the clash in this first story. Who has the authority to forgive sins? And the old wineskin of the Pharisees makes them think this. Only God can forgive, and he does it through the sacrificial system and through priests. This is the only way this happens. Nobody else has the authority to forgive sins. And Jesus, with the new wine that he's bringing in, says, I actually have the unique authority of God to forgive sins here on earth. And this throws them for a loop. And this is a big deal because last week we talked about how, whether it's physical sickness, or whether it's spiritual oppression, or whether it's the problem of uncleanness, these are all problems that humanity has that Jesus has authority over, that he can fix, that he can solve. But underlying all of those things, whether it's physical sickness or spiritual oppression or uncleanness, the fundamental problem to all of those things is human sin, human rebellion against God. And so Jesus not only has authority over these more external issues, he actually can fix the heart of the problem himself. He has the authority to forgive sins. In the second section, 13 through 17, the clash is over fellowship with the unclean and with the sinful. And the religious elite look at Jesus and they say, you're hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. What does that say about you? In, in this day and age, tax collectors were people who made a buck off of their neighbors. Um, they weren't always necessarily hired directly by Rome, but they would collect taxes on goods and fares that were going around them by their fellow Israelites. And they would charge exorbitant taxes above what was actually required. 
and they would line their pockets, and they would do it all under the favor of oppressors. And so for the typical Israelite, a tax collector is the kind of guy that you just want to bust out his kneecaps. He's a wicked guy. He's oppressing everybody around you. And he's, he's enjoying it. He's benefiting off of it. And this is the kind of people that Jesus is sitting around the table with, reclining with. And we don't get details about the kind of sinners that are in mind here, but these are immoral, wicked people. When the Bible says sinners, it's not just talking about, well, they don't follow the rules quite like we do. In, in Luke, it talks about prostitutes. Jesus is accused of being a drunkard, often because of the people that he hangs around. So these are dirty people. And the religious elite, this is their wine, old wineskin. This is what they think. That those kind of people, tax collectors, sinners of every stripe, they need to fix themselves. They need to reform their way of life before they have fellowship with God and his people. Sinners, dirty people, need to reform their way of life before they actually have fellowship with God and with his people. So you go over there, you fix yourself up, don't come near me because you're going to make me unclean. No, I don't want that. That's the old wineskins of the Pharisees. And yet Jesus takes a totally different approach, and he shares table with them. And in the ancient world, this is more than just receiving sustenance together. Uh, this is a evening drawn out. This is a symbolic representation of, hey, let's have a friendship here. Let's share life. And in some sense, let's, let's be together. And so far from the Pharisees who think that they would be unclean because of hanging out with these people, Jesus invites these kind of people in because that's what transforms them. It's fellowship with Jesus that changes sinners and tax collectors. That doesn't happen by their own efforts before they approach God. Jesus says, hey, come on in, sit with me. And it's his contagious holiness that actually changes them. The old wineskins of the Pharisees say, you go away, fix yourself on your own, and then you can come and have fellowship with God and with his people. And the new wine that Jesus brings in and says, come, regardless of your background, regardless of what you've been caught up in, and let's have a meal. And he doesn't have to approve of the things that they do in order to show them the love of God and to show them a character that transforms the way they live. And then we move on and we look at 23 through 28, the third clash, and that's over gleaning grain on the Sabbath. It was legal for people who didn't have a whole lot to go along the fields of other people and pick a little bit of grain if they were hungry. Um, but these Pharisees are literally following Jesus and his disciples around looking for something, just something to peg this guy on. And what they see is these disciples are picking a little bit of grain and eating it. And they say, ah, you are breaking the Sabbath. You're picking grain, doing work on the Sabbath. So the old wineskins of the Pharisees sa says, any work at all on the Sabbath breaks God's law and is sinful. And the new wine that Jesus brings in is that I have authority over the Sabbath and I can allow my disciples to do what they need to do in this time. You see, the Pharisees thought, they thought of God in this way and they thought of creation in this way. God had a whole bunch of rules in his mind before he created. 
God knew uh, this is what exactly what I want my creatures to do. And so he had a whole bunch of rules. And then he created, and he created humans to live out those rules. They put the priority on the rules, and the humans are just there to follow the rules. That's how they thought. That's how they lived. But Jesus flips it. He, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God didn't have a bunch of rules in his mind and then create humans to, to follow them. God created humans to live in relationship with him. To live out a full life upon the earth and represent God. And he gave them rules to set boundaries that are good for them. To bring about flourishing for them. The Pharisees think people were made for the rules. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Rules were brought in for people's good. They don't need to dictate every little thing. And whenever I'm here, whenever I'm doing my work with my disciples, this is okay. And then in 3, 1 through 6, this is the last clash. And it's over not just doing a work on the Sabbath, it's over doing a good thing on the Sabbath. And this is the most ironic scene. Because the old wineskins of the Pharisees say that absolutely nothing can be done on the Sabbath. No work. And if it's a non-emergency, you can't heal somebody. Because that would be displeasing to God. So, healing, that's off the list. And Jesus says, the new wine that he's bringing is, how can you say that? How can something that brings wholeness and blessing and life to somebody be displeasing to God? And in the pitch of the irony is that even as they're so concerned to preserve this day, to follow the rules, to be godly people, they're looking at God in the flesh right before them. He's not following the rules, and they decide they want to kill him on the very day they're trying to keep holy. Conflict after conflict, we see Jesus clashing with religious authorities. And by the end, there's, there's two paths. The people of Israel can choose to stick with the things that they know that are familiar. They can choose to follow the way of man-made religion that they've been raised in. That is built up over time as humans have just made more and more rules to try to regulate what it means to walk with God. Or they can choose a new way. And this is controversial. They can reject the teachings and the ways of their teachers that they've grown up with. And they can line up with Jesus the King who's doing a new thing. Whose way of living does not conform to man-made religion. His way of living actually brings God's reign to the earth. And so there's a choice there. Which one are they going to go with? And even though these religious issues are far away and they're foreign to us, we're not familiar with Sabbaths and different things like that. We still are in a religious culture. Like I said, we're in the Bible Belt of America. And I think one of the most dangerous ideas that we can buy into, one of the most dangerous ideas that we can actually live in light of, whether we claim to have a relationship with Christ or we've been just kind of on the fringes for a while, is this idea. I have acceptance with God. I have favor with God. I am pleasing to God because of what I do or what I don't do. So the basic question is, what am I doing? What am I not doing? And that decides whether I have favor with God, whether I'm growing in holiness, whether I'm pleasing to Him. 
And so for some of us, we've grown up in this area, and you've heard that we're all generally pretty good people. We think that, by and large, I'm a moral person. I haven't committed any flagrant sins. I've not killed anybody. I've not committed adultery. I'm not married yet, so that one's kind of off the list. Um, I've not abused alcohol or drugs, or if you have, then that's not that big of a deal. We have a whole list of things that we say, these are the serious things, and I don't do those. But I'm generally okay with God. He's not disappointed in me. He's not against me. And then we, we think this other thing where the good things that we do actually kind of counterbalance the imperfections in our lives. And so fill in the blank, whatever that is, whether that's attending church or walking the old lady across the street, whatever moral acts we think are actually going to outweigh maybe some of the imperfections in our lives, that's where we put our hope. And so we think of life almost like this, like it's a picture that we're painting. And we're not that great painters. We're a little bit imperfect. And so don't look at the river. Don't look at the sunset. But hey, look at this tree. Hey, look at this squirrel. That's really good, right? And we're presenting this picture to God. And we're saying, hey, focus on the good things. Yeah, there's some imperfections, but hey, check these parts out. And this is how we live life. This is common in our culture right around us. And the thing that Jesus comes in to point out is that we're not born just kind of okay. We're not born as generally good people who have some imperfections. That each and every one of us has this fundamental problem called sin. And that's just rebellion against God. And so, if you've had a lustful thought, if you've ever lied to somebody, if you've ever acted hypocritically, if you've ever hurt somebody with your words, I'm raising my hand on all of these things, this is sin in your heart. And none of us are clean from that. None of us escape that. And so this whole idea of I'm generally okay there are imperfections in my life, but I'm going to do good things and it's going to outweigh that. It just falls apart. Because sin, regardless of what it is, is rebellion against God. And it calls for condemnation. It calls for removal from God's presence. And we're all in that boat. And so Jesus comes in and he not only heals, he not only casts out demons... He not only makes unclean people clean, but he has the authority to forgive sins, to remove them from you and from me. And so that list that I just listed, there's more things that we could go on through. Whatever that is in your heart, that rebellion against God himself, Jesus can remove that from you. And you can't persist in the idea that I'm just going to do a little bit better and God's going to overlook these small things. The call of Christ is to confess your sins, to lay them at his feet, and to trust that he's going to take them away. As the scripture says, he takes our sins and removes them as far as the east is from the west, an infinite gap forever taken care of. And tomorrow, whenever you fall, next week, whenever you screw up, that forgiveness doesn't change. 
Trust in Christ means that forgiveness is steadfast and continuing. You're not just a generally okay person. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We are sinners. We rebelled against God. And the only answer for that is trusting in Christ. Turn from that false view and just trust the Lord who can remove sins from you. Others of us think that whether we do these things or don't do these things, it increases us in holiness. So many of us have a relationship with the Lord. We've trusted Him. We have confessed our sins and we have decided to follow Him. But then we slip into this idea that if I do this, it's going to make me holy. It's going to make me more pleasing to God. And I, I feel this all the time. Even today, this sermon was for me. <laughs> um, I believe the lie that what I do grows me in holiness and favor with God. If I work hard, if I do a good job, if I give it my all and place it at God's feet, he's more pleased with me. That's the lie that I believe. There's others of you who think that if you just pray more, if you just read scripture more, if you just serve or evangelize or do any sort of spiritual activity, that's actually going to build up your favor with God. God's going to be more pleased with you whenever you do that. And whenever we do well at those things, it leads to the spiritual pride within us. We begin to feel like, all right, I got this. I'm doing good. And then we begin to look around at other people who are not quite doing the same thing, and we begin to get frustrated a little bit. We begin to get a little bit judgmental. And then this thought starts to roll through our minds. If only they would just do it like me. If only I could just show them how this should work out, then they would be better. And so believing this lie that what you do earns more and more favor with God leads to spiritual pride. It leads to judgment of others. And this is not the character of God that he's, try that he's called you to re reflect as a disciple. And I just want to remind you, I want to remind myself that Jesus has called us into a relationship of love. Take a look again at Mark 1. I want you to see this scene. Jesus has called us into a relationship of love, and we get this little peek into what that relationship of love is. We get to see the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 11 where Jesus comes up from being baptized. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And right before that, the spirit is descending on Jesus. So we get this little window into a God who is perfect love. Father, son, and spirit. And to be a Christian, to be a disciple of Jesus, means that you get to share in that relationship of love. The infinite, unending steadfast, transformative love that the, God, the Father has for the Son and for the Spirit and all around is for you. You're invited into that. And that is the basis of your Christian life. That is the foundation of your Christian life. That is sure and unshakable. Jesus has called you into a relationship of love that doesn't change whether you're doing well or you're not doing well. Now, all of us know that whenever we do 
walk away from faithfulness to the Lord, whenever we commit sins, there's a sense of fellowship that ebbs away. And we feel that. We feel a little bit more disconnected from the Lord. That's normal. That's natural. That doesn't mean that the steadfast love of God is gone. It doesn't mean that that's erased. That is a foundation. And your sense of fellowship with God can grow and it can ebb away based on how you live. But the love of God is sure and certain and steadfast. And it's the spiritual activities that we do, prayer, reading scripture, evangelism, mission trips, you name it. These things are just things that foster that relationship, that grow us in strength in that relationship, and they extend that relationship to others. They are not the basis, they are not the foundation of the relationship that we have with God. God is not more pleased with you if you pray two hours tomorrow morning. He loves you just the same. That might help you grow in your relationship with the Lord. That might help you to feel closer to Him. That doesn't change the love that He has for you, though. If you don't pray at all tomorrow morning as a Christian, God doesn't remove His love from you. His love is sure and certain and steadfast. And so we, we pursue these things, these spiritual activities, prayer, scripture, evangelism, being in community, because it helps build that relationship that we have with God. It helps us grow in that, grow strong in that, and to feel God's presence more and more. But it doesn't establish God's favor with us. And so regardless of where we are, whether you've been kind of floating through Christian circles, maybe you've just ended up here, and you've absorbed this idea that God's favor is dependent on what I do or don't do. And so I'm just going to kind of do good things for my life and trust that the good's going to outweigh the bad. The call to you right now is to reject that. That is false, man-made religion. It is not pulled from the scriptures. It is not taught by Jesus. It's actually put to death by Christ. And the call to you is just to confess your sins. You know them. And to trust the Lord that he can remove them from you and make you clean. And for others of you, the call tonight is just to be reminded. The foundation has been laid for you. You've trusted Christ. God's love is sure and certain for you. And yes, spiritual activities are a good thing. Continue to grow in them. Continue to be strengthened by them. But they do not achieve favor with God. Whether you do or you don't do doesn't decide whether you're accepted or not. That's the work of Christ, and that's been accomplished for you.